Are, are things always the way that they appear? Are things always the way that they look? <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, you know Photoshop, right? <laughs> How many people have heard of Photoshop? <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. Um, just take a look at a couple of these uh, and take a look. Okay, the one with the white lines. Stare at, at the, where the lines cross and then move your eyes a little bit. Do you see black dots? There's white dots at the intersections, but if you move your eyes back and forth, do you see black ones? Yeah, some do and some don't. Okay. Um, no, there aren't any black dots on the page. That's just something that your eyes do when you move them. Okay, what about this one? Uh, those, those lines look pretty, that's pretty crazy. That looks like something from the 70s, doesn't it? The way, I think I had a pair of pants like that. <laughs> anyway, um, but those lines, they look curved. But they're actually completely horizontal. I got a ruler out on my computer screen and I measured them. They're exactly horizontal. And they're parallel. Okay, last one. Which, which one of the vertical lines looks longer? That one or that one? I got, I got three or four votes for this one. How many votes do I have for the other one? You're all, you're all playing your cards close to your chest. They're exactly the same length. It's an optical illusion because when the, the thing's going like this, it makes the line look longer. And when it goes like this, our brain thinks it looks shorter. Okay. Now, but you see... And, and it's getting harder and harder to tell sometimes. Technological advancements today. We have the ability. And now, how many people have heard of something called deep fake videos? Okay, not too many. Okay, deep fake. Um, deep fake is when they can take a video and take a person in an existing video or image and replace that person with someone else's likeness and it can be so, and, it, and, and the, the programs are so advanced now that it's really hard to tell. It almost, it looks real. Um, and and deep fake videos have deceived thousands of people because they can literally put words into the mouth of an image of a celebrity or a politician and then sway public opinion. I've got a short video here, and I hope, I'm trying to do this for the first time. We're going to try to see if this will actually play. Okay, Go, that is Amy Adams, she's an actress, on the left. That's not Amy Adams on that side. That is Amy Adams with Nicolas Cage's face. One ugly girl. <laughs> no, but did you see how the head movements, the lip movements, everything? If you didn't look carefully, not Amy Adams. Real or fake? Yeah. Optical illusions make, can make our brains uh, make certain assumptions and be tricked, but we can go through life with other illusions as well. A common one, and one that I really find frightening, is that someone might be under the illusion that they're in a right relationship with God when they aren't. It, it isn't uncommon to hear people say, uh, for example, that because they 
belong to a certain group that they're right with God. And, and, but, and people that don't accept uh, what is written here as authoritative in their lives could be under the illusion that they're ready for heaven when in fact they are not. They could be dead wrong. But what would you say to someone who held that kind of confidence? That mistaken confidence that they were right with God. How would you, how would you talk to them? That's what Paul wants to do in this, this first few chapters of the book of Romans. He's addressing his fellow Jews. He's addressing his own people, Israel. But how can he convince them that they have a misplaced trust for their relationship with God? And the question that we want to answer, or try to answer this morning, is who are the true people of God? Israel thought they were. Who are the true people of God? So let's turn to Romans chapter 2. And we'll pick up where we left off last week. Okay. Uh, last week we did the first part of this right up to through verse 16. And in my Bible, the, the headline over this section is called The Jews and the Law. And so Paul, beginning at verse 17 here, he's addressing... His, the audience members that are either Jewish background Christians or perhaps just uh, God-seekers who are, are going to be in there and listening to them. He says, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know His will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who ab you who abhor idols want nothing to do with them. Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Ouch. Wow. I think if Paul didn't have the attention of his Jewish audience by the the first part of Romans chapter 2, because the first one there, he, 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 he talked a lot about it. But if he didn't have their attention at the beginning of the chapter, I think he certainly got it here. God, imagine hearing that. You think you're God's people, and now Paul's writing to you, God's name is blasphemed because of you. Whoa. And so they would have been jolted by this remark. And, and Paul is not asking these questions just to get them wound up. He's not trying to upset them. He's got a purpose behind it. He wants to make a vital point, a point of real importance to them. And it's basically paraphrased it this way. It's one thing to say you're something. It's quite another thing by your conduct to confirm it. 
That sounds like something that was done by a, a person who, who is a little bit cynical. But basically, what it's saying is, talk's cheap. When Paul started out in Romans, he, he was addressing this, this, this Jewish people in, in his audience kind of indirectly. And last week, what he showed us here in the beginning of the chapter is that God in Christ was saying that God now in Christ, in Jesus, has leveled this whole field. Everyone comes to God the same way. It doesn't matter if you have the law or not. Because he says it isn't those who hear the law that are righteous or declared right. It's those who obey the law. And in the Gentiles' case, he pointed out that even though he said their actions showed that they understood God's moral law because they had consciences. They, they also knew and had a sense of when, when they were doing something that would approve, be approved, they also knew when they were messing up and when it was wrong, even if he couldn't get it to, them to admit it. Now, a Jewish leader or reader might, might, be, might take offense right now because he might be saying, well, wait a minute. We, we have been told from the time we were born that we are God's special people. That we are God's people of Israel. God found us. He took Israel, this little tiny cut. That's who we were. There wasn't even a little over a million of us at that point. And he took us out of Egypt. And he said, you're going to be my people. We are God's people, they might say. Now, it is true that, that Israel is God's special people. That, that, we're not debating that. That's not up to a debate. And God has indeed blessed them. But Paul is saying that the blessings in themselves are not going to exempt them from judgment. So what, what are the blessings? He, we kind of read through them a little quickly here, but uh, let's just have a quick look. He actually says there were nine privileges of being part of God's special people. The first one, he said, even your name, to be called Jewish, to be chosen. You were chosen by God. That was the first blessing. Originally, that, the, word, uh, Jew, the, the word Jew meant somebody from Judah, but in the first century, of course, by that time, it was, it was applied to all of Israel, no matter whether you were part of Judah or, or one of the other 11 tribes, the other 10 tribes. Um, what it meant, of course, that you belonged to a, district, a distinct people, chosen by God to be his own. And they were that. Yeah, they were. He said they've also, the second one, they'd been given and relied on the law in, and that's where we see God's character and God's will. And the law, of course, they're talking about here, the law that Moses gave them of the mountain. The problem is that they were relying on this. They were relying on it for de deliverance from judgment. They were overconfident in it, really. Um, the minor prophet, he's minor because his letter's small, not because he was less significant, but Micah, near the end of our Old Testament, made that point. He actually prophesied and rebuked, took to account the leaders of Israel for their sin. And he asked them, he said, is not the Lord among us? 
They, they were saying things like, Is, is isn't the Lord among us? No disaster is going to come on us. Ah, a little overconfident perhaps. So they, they were relying on that. The third is that they had a relationship with God. And they actually bragged about it. And you know what? That's okay. This is one thing you can brag about. I think what the Bible actually says is, um, you know, like if we're boasting about how good we are, you know, then that, that's an issue. You know, like some people just are, are very filled with themselves. Um, you know, and it's always got to be about them. Me, 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 me. But that's not the boasting he's talking about here. He says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Bragging about, uh, no, Paul actually uses the word boast in the original language here, not bragged. Jeremiah, in chapter 9, said, if we're going to do it, he says, don't boast about your wisdom or your strength or your riches, but boast that we understand and know the Lord. And that's the privilege that they had. And so do we. Fourth, they had been given insight into God's will, thanks to the law. Don't make the mistake of just reading your New Testament. Go back and read the Old as well, because the, it, it shows God's character. It shows God's righteousness. It shows how he wants us to live. And those principles carry over into our relationship with him. Yeah. What a privilege to have that kind of insight. And, and he said they approved of what was superior. Uh, well, yeah, they felt that what they had, the law, and they had God, that was superior. But the law gave them, and this is number five, it gave them discernment. It gave them the ability to distinguish the things that really mattered from the things that didn't. How many times do we major in the minors and we forget the big picture? You know, somebody said, like, if you're going to put uh, rocks and, and pebbles and sand into a jar, make sure you put the big ones in first, and then the next ones, and then finish with the sand, or it won't all fit. You try it sometime, it really works. It's a good illustration. Uh, so they were able to distinguish and really have that discernment about what mattered, because if it matters to God, it should matter to us, to them. Number six, they were guides for the blind, and number seven, they were a light for those who are in the dark. Those, actually, that's two ways of saying basically the same thing. And what it's saying is that because they had knowledge of God through the law, the light of God's revelation, they were able to help others understand God's truth. Isaiah, in chapter 42, it's not on the screen, but he said this, God speaking through his prophet, I, the Lord have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. Oh, wow, God's holding my hand. No, wow, God's holding my hand. I will hold, take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Hundreds of years before Paul ever set foot on Gentile territory, Isaiah told us that's what God was going to do. 
Why? To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Jesus read from this passage when he did his first sermon in Capernaum. And then he announced to them, the one he was talking about is here. Yeah. So, they, they had that. But they also believed, and because of this, they also believed, but Isaiah said that they, Israel, collectively, as well as individually, were, had a mission. They were to give this instruction, this religious instruction, to the nations around them. They were to be a blessing to the rest of the world. A blessing. And, and then to illustrate that, Paul, number eight, he says, they were instructors of the foolish. And number nine, they were teachers of infants. The word foolish here does not mean stupid. Uh, it doesn't mean even rebellion in God. It does mean that they lacked understanding. They were, they were prone to, to, because they didn't really understand, they would get off into unacceptable wrong forms of behavior and wrong forms of worship. So eight and nine are kind of like a pair as well. Really, they are. Um, instructors of the foolish and teachers of infants because babies do need to be taught lots of things. So from their perspective, the Gentiles were spiritual infants and uh, they needed to be taught the true knowledge of God. And so they, they, they thought it was a privilege to instruct the nations. Now it's one thing to say you're something, but it's another thing by your conduct to confirm it. We have perception and we have reality, like the pictures we saw. There's theory. How many people think theory and practice are always the same? <laughs> no, there's theory and then there's actually practice. And there's what we claim about ourselves and then there's who we really are and our behavior shows that. Which of these, these nine, is the most accurate estimate of our true selves? Which of these things? I, you know, Paul emphasizes this disconnect in, in verses 21 to 24 that we already read. He said, you say these things, but are you doing them? Is what he's actually saying, and he's illustrating it quite, quite literally. You teach, but do you teach yourself? Are you, are you listening to your own words? How many parents, well, you don't ever want to say to your kids, do as I say, not as I do, because the kids are going to do what you do. Uh, I know that. <laughs> oh, do I know that. Yeah. Um, yeah, right down to the mannerisms. That's crazy, huh? Uh, I lost myself. I went on a little, a little brain break there, sorry. Uh, you know, he's saying you, you, you do these things. Um, you're preaching about not stealing, but are you stealing? There was actual evidence, we have evidence, that although they detested idols and idolatry, there's evidence they were robbing the pagan temples to take the gold and silver and melt them down. Hmm. It was okay, they were only pagans. No, it's not okay. It's still stealing. 
Uh, verse 23 in the New International, it's, it's a form of a question. It says, you who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? In the New Living Translation, another good modern translation says, you are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. It treats it as a statement of fact. So he's saying, you who brag or boast about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking it? Short answer, yeah, do. And if they failed to live out what the law actually taught, how could they be light to the other nations? How could they be light to the nations? And then Isaiah, that verse 24 is also a quote from Isaiah chapter 52, that God was being dishonored and being blasphemed. Two things distinguished God's chosen people, Israel. Two identifying marks from all the other nations. The first was they were the people of the law, the Mosaic law or the, the old covenant law given to Moses in the Exodus. That was the first. The second sign was the sign of the covenant that God made with them, circumcision. Uh, we're going to finish the chapter reading and then we'll, uh, we'll just talk about these last five verses. So verse 25. So he's turning to them, says, Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised, meaning the Gentiles, keep the law's requirement, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you even though you have the written code and circumcision as, and they'll condemn you as a lawbreaker. And then he says, verse 28, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person who is a Jew, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Wow. Paul knew as better than most because he was a scholar and he'd been taught by Gamaliel in his school. You know, like that's like going to Harvard. You know, like uh, it was the, Gamaliel was one of the most valued and trusted teachers. Paul knew better than most how precious that outward sign of the covenant was to Israel. That was the identifying mark. And, but in the two centuries before Jesus was born, what was happening in Israel was very similar in many ways to what was happening is happening today among, our, among the church. A lot of Jewish people were compromising and they were starting to adopt Greek uh, ways of thinking and they were abandoning their Jewish distinctives. And they were helped along with this by a few, uh, a few conquering enemies. Uh, before the Romans uh, occupied Israel, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. You, you, everybody knows that name, right? I did, I used to use it once before. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it was the Seleucids, the, the Seleucid Empire. 
And they ruled this area. And Antiochus tried to eradicate the Jewish religion. And he did it, first of all, he even made circumcision illegal. And he made it punishable by death if you circumcised your boys. And that led to a revolt. Devout Jewish people, devout Jews, rose up in what became known as the Maccabean Revolt. You've heard of the Maccabees? Yeah, that's them. Um, Judas Maccabeus and his followers. And they liberated Judea from the Seleucids. And it was a hard-fought battle. And because it was, circumcision became even more meaningful to them. The distinctive was even more meaningful. So when Paul's writing, this is, this is it's not a negotiable at all. Uh, fast forward to Paul's time. You see on this map, the, the gold band there is dense Jewish population all the way through what is now Turkey, right up over to uh, where it uh, goes over into Greece. That was very heavily populated by Jewish people and Jewish cultural centers. There's cultural centers in there as well. But they're migrating all over the Mediterranean. And because they're doing that, they're mingling with this Gentile culture everywhere they go. And the really devoted ones were watching the erosion of those traditions and the erosion of that distinctive culture of what it meant to be Jewish. And a lot of them resisted it the same way that Orthodox Jews do today, by going old school. Uh, keeping the traditional hair, keeping the clothing, all those things. So circumcision was an emotionally charged issue in the early days of the Christian church as well. Well, Paul's point here is saying that he's not saying it's bad. He's saying it only has value if you're observing the law. And so being physically born in Israel, even having the outward sign of the covenant, was not a mark of the true people of God. Circumcision was... An, um, it wasn't. He, he restates, actually, in Romans chapter 9, he, he says it again later. He says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. That's another one of those confusing parts of Romans 9, 10, and 11 we're going to get to. We're going to have fun there. <laughs> okay, so the marks of the true people. Outward signs and behavior didn't identify God's people. To be part of it was an inward matter. It was the circumcision of the heart, not the circumcision of the heart as prescribed in the Mosaic Law. And they would have, they would have or should have known that, actually. They, they would have known that if they had been really reading their Old Testament, or their, 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 their Testament. Because Moses himself told that to them. <laughs> yeah, Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses said, Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. He knew that they were they were saying, like this, hold out the hand. Don't, don't come any farther. He knew they were saying that. And he knew that by stiff-necked, he meant they were rebelling against, chafing against what, what they were to do. And 
And by the way, circumcision, we understand, was not given as part of the law. It actually came before the law. It was introduced before the law was given. But by this time, and in Jewish thought and teaching, it was so closely linked. It was closely linked with obedience to the law. And so by saying that circumcision hasn't got any, doesn't have any value if the law isn't obeyed, Paul's saying that the covenant that through Moses can't save anybody. No, because the other mark of God's true people is a faith-filled commitment to Jesus. A faith-filled commission, commitment to Yeshua, the Messiah. And he goes on beyond that. He says, the, uh, he says, heart circumcision actually is the work of the Holy Spirit. It isn't something done through the written code. It's a work of God. It's a work of God. So his own people needed the Holy Spirit as well. The Jewish people needed Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Messiah. Excuse me. Did I mute that? I, oh. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't blow my nose. <laughs> Sorry. <sighs> uh, you know, we, we live in a wonderful time, a wonderful world, really. But in our time and our culture, and in our culture particularly, it's more general now, tolerance and acceptance of others are the highest values. They are the highest virtues in our culture. Except tolerance toward Christians. We're still fair game, apparently. But Christians today are under tremendous pressure to privatize what we believe, to keep it to ourselves. Um, that pressure didn't start with us. It began well over 40 years ago, over 50 years ago. There was a, a, a brilliant writer named Dr. Francis Schaeffer who, who wrote a book talking about how then shall we live. And in that book, he said, we are in an age, and this was 45, 50 years ago, we're in an age of what he called personal peace and affluence. Okay, we understand the affluence thing, because that's about really compared to the world, we're pretty well off. But the personal peace thing, what he meant by that was people are telling us, leave me alone. Give me my own peace. Don't tell me what you believe. I want peace from that. And that's the pressure we're seeing more and more these days that, uh, to, to keep this as a private thing. And yet Jesus told us to go public. He told us others need to hear this message. So it's a challenge. And the challenge is, well, we, we want to do that because we also live in a society that has an increasing number. Now, there are, a lot, there are other faith perspectives, certainly, but there are an increasing number of what they call the nuns, not N-U-N, N-O-N-E-S, who would say, I don't have a faith system of any sort. Don't have a faith at all.
And when we come to them and they listen to us as we tell them, try to speak to them about Jesus, often they'll, they'll tolerate us to a, to a point. And usually the point is when they realize that the gospel, not us, but the gospel says they are lost without Jesus. And then sometimes they will respond in a very harsh, strong way and reject the message and be angry and sometimes reject us. And then they'll tell us that what we believe is exclusive, that it doesn't include them. But have they ever read the Bible? I'm not doing that. I don't want to be bashing people. That sounds horrible. But, but Jesus didn't die on the cross to save just a few people. He died not just to save people from a small country in the Middle East. He came so that all people might be able to be right with God. All people. God so loved Israel that he gave us one. no. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. If only they will receive him and believe the gospel. The gospel's inclusive. And Paul is hammering that point home. We are all in the same dilemma. We are held captive by sin. And we are helpless to save ourselves. Not a popular message today, but still the truth. And, and my natural mind resisted that for years and years. Our natural minds resist believing this, fights it all the way. Talk to the hand, don't talk to me. But the good news is good news for all. It was particularly hard, though, for Israel because they were the people of the covenant. It was hard for them to believe that they weren't automatically right with God just by who they were. And yet, that was and is the truth. They weren't. Because the gospel is for everybody. Even for devoted Jews like Saul of Tarsus, who was persecuting the followers of Jesus until he was brought to his knees and was confronted with the truth in an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. That change was so dramatic in that man that Saul even changed his name and became known as Paul, the writer of half the books of our New Testament. Thirteen books out of the 27. Now, in a sense, I, I, in, a, in one sense, the, 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 the people of Israel did have an advantage over us because God made them, him known to them first. So, and there is a special relationship between them. And Paul's going to unpack that through the rest of, of this letter. But our rescue and their rescue comes entirely by God's grace through the gospel. And that's what he said in chapter 1. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. 
We can't take credit for it. There's only one way to be included as the true people of God, and that is a relationship with Jesus. Yeah, four words. A relationship. Did I put that up there? Yeah, I did. Relationship with Jesus Christ. It's just a blank on your handout, I think. Entering into a relationship with him through the writer, what the writer of Hebrews called the new and living way. Through the new and living way. The new covenant established by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross at Calvary. All other paths lead to destruction. For God so loved the world. That's why I wanted this song again this Sunday, by the way. I love that first song we started with. For God so loved the world that he gave. Uh, yeah, you guys just see me bouncing from the back, I know. But, yeah. but that for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Wow. Yeah, we should all say, wow. wow. Yeah. <laughs> yes. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. Jew or Gentile, those who believe and receive Jesus, those who believe and receive Jesus are the true people of God. And that's the end of chapter 2. And we've got 13 more. Woohoo! <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, I am so glad, and I, and I am joyful when I think of the love that you expressed, not just for me, but for your whole creation. Lord, Scripture tells us that even creation is groaning under the stress. And we see that when we, when we hear of, of viruses and we, and we hear of earthquakes and all those things. It's that the world is groaning and waiting for your return. And we are eagerly waiting too. But in the meanwhile, Lord, may we be the true people of God. May it show in our lives. And may we not mail it in. May we just, may we truly walk with you. And not be content to just, with just enough. But to know you better and to know you more. And that it would translate into actual, actually serving and telling others the story. And when they find out, Lord, bringing them together so they can be part of a community that can encourage and support and do all those things that we can't do on our own. Thank you, Jesus, for this amazing, wonderful human being named the Apostle Paul. Thank you, Lord, for preserving your word given to him, your very words on this page in his understanding, in his language. It's you, Lord, we're here to sing and praise us of, not Paul. We give you glory. And the Apostle Paul would be right at the front of the line to do that as well. In your name, we pray and thank you. Amen. Amen.